Greetings, fellow Bitcoiners. You've just entered the Orange Pill Academy, where we help elevate you into an eloquent and compelling ambassador for the bright orange future. Today, I'm joined by Brandon Quittam, one of the MVPs of Bitcoin content, known best for his work on Bitcoin as the mycelium of money and his exploration of the fourth turning and how Bitcoin will likely be the foundation of our new societal institutions. Professionally speaking, Brandon spends pretty much all day every day thinking about what draws people to Bitcoin, what problems it solves for them, and how to address their concerns and misgivings as they start to explore this mycelium of money. He's orange-pilled thousands of people through his writing, speaking, and conversation. In other words, he's the perfect guest for this episode of the Orange Pill Academy. We discuss how to use cognitive dissonance, using past failures to build trust and manage expectations, how Morgan Freeman orange-pilled Batman, why most Bitcoiners ruin their orange pill efforts by skipping three essential steps, and much more. Thank you for being here. Now listen up. Class is in session. Brandon Whittem, welcome to the Orange Pill Academy. I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you and I had the opportunity to meet, I think, in 2021 at the Bitcoin conference in Miami. And then it was a couple of years and we just got to reconnect at Pacific Bitcoin last month, which was a blast, by the way. And I know that you have, you were certainly influential in my orange pill journey, reading your early work on mycelium. And I know that you have been working hard over the past few cycles to orange pill other people. So I was delighted at the opportunity or your willingness to come on and talk to me and everyone else listening about your experience, your insight, your wisdom around this whole process, what to do, what not to do, et cetera, et cetera. So for those listeners that don't know you, can you just give us a quick background on who you are and what you do within the Bitcoin world? Yeah, absolutely. So first, Miami 2021, that was the hot and sweaty swan dome, right? We had some shanties in the dome and yeah, that was a very fun year. Thanks for the comments on Pacific Bitcoin as well. I'm obviously super biased, but I think it's the it's my favorite conference by far. So who am I? Just quick personal background. I'm from Minnesota, went to school here, started my career at Oracle selling enterprise software, then did about five years traveling around the world, working remotely, building startups, found Bitcoin in 2017. Very quickly fell down the shitcoin rabbit hole, traded them all, thought I was a genius. Quickly found out in 2018, I was in fact not a genius. Then went through this obsessive period like most people do, reading like crazy, cramming it all in my head, what's going on here. Came out of that period, I was living in uh, Asia at the time, in Chiang Mai and then Bali. Came out of that period saying, okay, Bitcoin's the thing, I'm going to shift my career towards this. And then did everything I could to break into the industry, sold off the primary business. My wife, girlfriend at the time, now wife, were working on and went all into Bitcoin stuff. I sold data products. I wrote for obscure websites. I had a consulting firm for a year. We shut down and then eventually found my way to Swan. I was about employee number five, joining end of 2019 before Swan launched. 
And now we're like 130 or so, and my official title is head of user acquisition. So from a professional standpoint, my job is to orange pill people more or less onto Swan. And then like most Bitcoiners, I would say I went through the typical journey of the orange pill dealer. So I was just gobsmacked by Bitcoin in 2017. Couldn't shut up about it. Tried to convince all my friends, like I figured out the secret to the universe. And of course they viewed that as crazy because we do sound crazy when we do that. And I think just from an evolutionary biology standpoint, humans have this gut feeling or this way to sense when we're being sold something. And so that like charlatan archetype is really easy for the normal people to observe. And so we need to slow down and meet people where they are. But back to that journey. So gobsmacked by Bitcoin, crazy evangelist, doesn't work. Then we go through the bear market. Okay, I realized where I was wrong through touching the fire, the hot fire many times. Then I put the pieces back together and realized like, okay, I have some context around this Bitcoin thing. I've interacted with people who don't see it the same way as I do, starting to learn, okay, how to do this appropriately. And then let's say around 2020 through 2022, I would say that was my proper tour of duty onboarding people. And that the, the reality is that most people come because the number is going up, myself included. And so it's very hard to bring on new folks during the bear market, but the bull market, everyone's jumping in. And I would honestly say it's more about uh, cautioning or advising restraint in a bull market rather than trying to convince people. Because in a bull market, all their social signals are telling them to pay attention. And yeah, cautioning some restraint there. And I would say we're, see, feels like we're ramping up for another one. Maybe now, maybe in a year, I don't know, but the senses or the, the signs are starting to come back for another bull market. So we got to get ready. <laughs> uh, amen. That's why we're talking now. That's why I've decided to do this because I can definitely feel the bull raging in the pen, uh, if you will. Who knows when those doors will open, but it does feel like it's coming soon. That's a great story. I, I feel like I have heard it before. It's similar to mine. There's a pattern here. Talk to me a little bit about the pattern that you've seen. So if I were to ask two questions here to just have you riff on, the first would be, what does it mean to orange pill someone? In business speak, if you will, or product speak, I don't know. What is your exit criteria? For someone who has been orange pilled, they have ticked the following boxes, right? And until those boxes are ticked, we, we might not use that term. So what's your definition of someone being orange-pilled? And then if you think of the sort of mythological hero's journey, a sort of archetypal story or, uh, or a journey that people go through, what are the patterns and the stages that you've seen most often? And especially like, how long do you think this typically takes? Because one of the mistakes, the misassumptions that I want to guard against is that gobsmacked enthusiasm that drives people to think or or just intuit, maybe I can convince this guy in one conversation to put his life savings into Bitcoin. Let me just tell him everything there is about Bitcoin and everything there is about the fiat world, right? And so like, how can we adjust the expectations of Bitcoiners who are hoping to spread the, the benefits, the, the, the love, if you will, that is Bitcoin. So what's the archetypal story you've seen and what's your exit criteria on orange pilling? 
Yeah, absolutely. So just a meta principle here. I think curiosity is king. And I think learning in general is all based on curiosity. For example, kids do not need uh, to be told that they should learn things. They're pre-programmed to obsess over learning and sort of get jaded a little bit less so the world sorts of punch back at us so maybe lose that spark. But in general, humans are learning machines. And if we're interested in something, we can learn it very quickly. We're very interested and we'll also retain it. So I think the meta principle is all about sparking that curiosity so that someone else pursues Bitcoin on their own time because they want to. No one wants to be sold to. We can't convince anyone of anything. They have to convince themselves. So it's our job to try and figure out, first of all, what do we know about this person, right? Bitcoin is many things to many people. And if you're talking to someone, let's say from the political left, and you're talking about libertarian values, that's not going to go very well. Right. Even if that's a very good argument, it's not matched to the person you're talking to. So starting from where they are is super key. And it really doesn't take much. It's find out their little hot buttons, drop content their way, frame it on their terms and walk away. Uh, you mentioned give it all in one go. That almost never happens. Um, my midwife was orange billed in five minutes, uh, maybe not by the definition I'm about to give, but she got it immediately because she's predisposed. And so if someone's predisposed, shorter journey, if they're, let's say their, their worldview is further away from what Bitcoin might represent today, then it's going to be a long journey and just accept that. And that's okay. Yeah, that's that. So the stages, I don't have this mapped out perfectly and there's not obviously a single path, but I would say along the way, buying some is a very important first step. Some mm. people would say, don't buy it, go learn about it. I think that that's cute advice but it's totally not practical. And the reason is our time is being pulled in a million directions. And so we have to somehow decide what to spend time on. And if we allow life to happen to us, we're gonna be doom scrolling. We're gonna be responding to our friends' group messages, the news, our boss, our spouse, whatever. We're just gonna be consuming passively in the world. And I think that we have to figure out a way to prioritize things we like. And one way to raise Bitcoin up so that people actually pay attention to it is by investing some amount of their wealth into it. It can be $5, $50, whatever the amount is for you to have skin in the game. I think that's a really crucial step. And I've done this many times and it's not small is better. It's just like, hey, open up Cash App, download Swan, whatever, go to River, buy 20 bucks worth of Bitcoin. And now you have that connection. It's in your pocket. You see the price go up. And that's one more one more potential path to get them to be curious on their own. So owning any amount, very important. Now, does that mean someone's orange pill? Definitely not. I would say the other steps would be they actually study it on their own. They're, they're sending you information. They're messaging you, hey, what's up with this ETF thing? Those are good signs. Along the way, if you're like, if, if it's anything other than that, I try to caution them against it and make them sell me on why it's a good idea. But that's also to protect yourself, right? First of all, psychology wise, if they're trying to convince you why they should buy something, you already won the game. So if you set up the game like that, you're in a good position. But the other thing is that people get scared and they don't know what they own. And Bitcoin is volatile. And normal people with good intentions panic sell the bear market bottom all the time. And so as Bitcoiners, we want to prevent that. Number one, they're going to be mad at you. Number two, they're going to make a poor decision. And so it helps steer them. And I have many scars from 2017 convincing people to buy 
these shit coins or Bitcoin. And the ones that I effectively said, just set up a DCA plan and forget about it. They've been stacking since and they're very happy with themselves. 20 bucks a week from 2017 to now looks really good for a normal person. And that's not a scary amount of money for most people. So anyways, that's that. Other steps on the journey, setting up a DCA plan. I mentioned that getting on Twitter, whenever they're coming to me from information or they're linking me on some like face Twitter, I'm sorry, a crypto Facebook group, getting their information, or they're sending me information from the New York times about energy FUD or something like that. I was like, okay, the conversations on Twitter, create an account. Here's some accounts to follow, pay attention. That's another really good sign. And, and my goal is always to get them thinking about self-custody. I think we shouldn't rush that. It's scary. It's weird. Most people don't actually want personal responsibility. And so the way I frame that is the end goal is self-custody, but right now you have $500 for the Bitcoin. So it's not worth the effort to go through this process. However, if that becomes 5,000, 50,000 or 500,000, at a certain point, you're going to start to say, whoa, this money really matters. That's the point, preferably a little before that. But when you're inside of the point where the money matters to you, that's when you want to go through the self-custody process. And we don't need to go into the details there, but that's how I that's how I feel about the journey. And you don't have to do all those things to be, quote, orange-pilled. Another one I'd like to see is understanding the difference between Bitcoin and crypto generally. Um, noobs do not really handle that one very well, I would say. It's too tempting to watch dog coins go up and Elon Musk tweeting about them. And so the way I always frame that for new people is saying, yeah, there's a bunch of these other things. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. Most people lose money. Some people make money, but you should treat it like a VC tech play or gambling generally. So 80 or 90% of your crypto holdings should be in Bitcoin long-term. Don't worry about it. If you want to gamble on the side, go for it. You'll probably lose money, but fine. And I don't believe they should, but I believe that's the right way to convey that message because I'd rather have them take that advice than hear me like tell them, no, you can't do this. And so in my experience, that's way more effective than all or nothing. It takes a very long time to understand the nuances of why Bitcoin's unique. It's hundreds or thousands of hours before you can really be confident in that difference. Now, some people, they just grab, grasp onto one argument why one is better than the other and they move on. But I think a well-rounded understanding requires a tremendous amount of time. Yeah. So I've been writing a few things down, as you said, that there's so much great stuff in there. Let me respond to a couple of them and see what you think. Feel free to interrupt me as I go here. But I very much agree with the curiosity as a sort of exit criteria. I said this in the first episode with Alec Bakush that education is the lighting of a fire, not the filling of a pail. So having that, and, and I think oftentimes early stage ham-fisted orange pillars are trying to fill that pail, right? Let me tell you all the stuff you need to know, right? Let me condense the thousands of hours of blog posts and podcasts and stuff that I've listened to into the next 20 minutes and hope that this accumulation of knowledge makes you, convinces you of, the bright orange future that awaits. Whereas I think a much more effective tactic is cognitive dissonance. Asking the right question that gets them to think, maybe I don't understand this as much as I thought I did. Or, oh, I never thought of the situation that way. Like, 
framing inflation as your money is a melting ice cube is a great kind of tactic. I've had a lot of success with them. They go, oh God, now that you say it, I guess I really do have a lot fewer gallons of milk every month if you translate my bank account into food from the grocery store. So creating that cognitive dissonance that makes them want to go out and close that gap that you've created in their mind. Um, that's excellent. I love this idea of being predisposed. Alec mentioned something similar in the last episode around who's your sort of target market that you're going to have the most success with. And this will probably lead us into the jobs to be done in a second here. But it's people that are trying to solve a certain kind of problem that Bitcoin solves really well. And they're solving it in an unsatisfactory way. So you want to listen for those. And those are the people that you want to talk with. Um, skin in the game, you talked about buying just a little bit of Bitcoin, 100% true. Uh, once you've got some of your money in this thing that you can check on your phone once a day, if you want, and notice if it's going up, is it going down? Um, now you've got a reason to pay attention. What was the, I, I love the aspect of rather than encouraging people to do it, advising caution it reminds me of that scene from the first Christopher Nolan Batman movie where Christian Bale is in the sort of like laboratory that uh, Morgan Freeman has and he sees the car underneath the whatever you call that, the canvas car covering. I can't think of the name. And he says, so what's that under there? He's clearly curious. And Morgan Freeman says, oh, the tumbler? You, you wouldn't be interested in that. And like by denying it to someone, it makes them want it more or at least much more curious. But who are you to tell me I can't have that thing? Hang on a second here. So I want to go over the key stages. And you mentioned the DCA plan and Twitter, which I think I'm going to add here. So I've been thinking of the orange pill process as a series of stages is arenas, I think is another way to describe them. An arena is a, a particular place where you play a certain game that has certain rules. And if you show up to the ice hockey arena ready to play football, it's not going to go well, right? So these following things are, I think of them as a, a kind of game that you play in the orange pill process. So I'm going to, I'll lay them out here briefly and you tell me what you think about them. Number one, planting seeds, right? Just making short comments or posts about Bitcoin, whether it's through social media or in casual conversation, nothing extensive, but just like small little indications that I'm a Bitcoiner and when the time comes that you may have some questions about it, maybe give me a call, right? The second is establishing rapport. And this has nothing to do with Bitcoin. Just sharing information about yourself, finding common interests, letting them know, like you said, you're not a charlatan, you're not a psycho, you're not a conspiracy theorist. In the generally defined sense of the term, although they seem to have a pretty good running record lately, but I digress. But just establishing trust, establishing rapport, the third is asking questions. And you commented on this. Who are these people that you're talking about? What's important to them? Learning about their pains, their gains, their values, the problems that matter in their lives that they're trying to solve. The fourth is telling stories. And it starts to get a little non-linear here. But when you think about it as an arena, one of the games that you play is, let me tell you about a situation that I've seen before or that I've been in that illustrates a certain thing that we're talking about right? 
And then they can project themselves into that story, see themselves in it and start to relate to it and say, oh, I may have some similar situation, right? The fifth would be explaining concepts. So when they come to you with questions, like you had mentioned, like what's with the energy thing? All right, so here's how Bitcoin mining works. Here's how the energy grid works and why it's this really fascinating kind of game theory of balancing out energy grids. Um, the fifth, I'm almost done. <laughs> the sixth is handling objections, right? They're gonna, it's similar to the explaining concepts, but they're gonna come to you as like, I heard it's bad for the environment or there's gotta be a, a number of them, but how do you, the crypto thing, right? How do you diffuse those uh, objections with, with common reasons for avoiding that stuff? The other one is not necessarily an arena that you play, but it's the do your own research, which is what you said when suddenly they're curious and now they start listening to podcasts. So I would probably put the Twitter thing in there that you mentioned, but I feel like there's another element, another arena here, which is plugging into the community, joining the community, joining the conversation as a slightly more than passive observer. And then the last step I have, which is, I guess your DCA thing, to a degree, but providing a next step, give them something to do, some action they can take, which could be as simple as go join Twitter, or here's the gradually then suddenly blog post series, or here's a blue wallet. I'll send you five bucks in Bitcoin, download it now, give them something to do. Anyway, those are the kind of key arenas that I've been mapping out and playing around with. What do you think about that? Is anything missing? Would you challenge any of those? What are your thoughts? I think it's the stereotypical sales cycle applied to orange peeling people. I think it's a really good framework. And if someone's not familiar, if this all sounds new to you, then this is a fantastic framework to keep in mind, especially the first three, planting seeds, establish trust, slash rapport and asking questions. Most people skip all that and they start talking at you. And yeah, if you skip steps one, two, and three, nothing else that you say matters. And so I think Bitcoiners need to really absorb that. What I would say on the rest of it, telling stories 100%, make it relevant, make it current events, make it what they saw in the news that day, make it the big talking head that everyone's heard about. What does Jack Dorsey say, et cetera? That's all super powerful. I would say the further down you go in the sales cycle, the more iterative it needs to be, the more nonlinear it is. You'll go back to step seven, 10 times. They can go all in different orders. And so once they're curious, once they're asking questions, then I think it's more like check these boxes, but it's not necessarily in order. Not really a critique. More, It's more mushy than this. And it's more. it usually takes more time. I really like planting the seeds as the Bitcoin guy. I think that's really important. And when I think about orange pilling, I think the most important thing is establishing trust. And the reason is people are mimetic. We outsource all our decision-making to people we know and trust. And, and the reason is the world's too complex. We can't actually spend the time thinking about everything. So we use heuristics like, who do I trust on money stuff? That's who I follow. Who do I trust on health stuff? I just blindly follow them. That's the norm. And so we want to be the Bitcoin guy who's willing and ready when they come back to you. And so just alerting people that you're that is a very good way to do it. And they'll come to you when they're ready. And generally speaking, Bitcoin's weird, less so over, over time. So maybe this isn't as relevant, but we don't, we, we're scared of change. It's a new thing. And if none of your immediate friends and family are buying this thing, it's a huge leap 
for the average person to buy this. And I don't think we appreciate what it felt like those early stages. Like it was an adrenaline rush for me buying shit coins in 2017, which one, what exchange, everything's new. And I would say most people don't feel comfortable going against the herd. So you need to really make it feel like they're on the side of the majority. And at the same time, they're not today. And so the way I, I like to frame that is thinking about, okay, the, in the early internet time, most people thought it was weird. Most people didn't get involved. However, the, the folks that did, they took a risk. They learned about some new weird thing. Maybe it wasn't popular, but I bet you can agree that they had outsized benefits from being early to the internet. A lot of wealth was created there. And I think Bitcoin's the same way where eventually everyone's going to be using this thing in some capacity and you don't have to get involved now. You absolutely can wait. However, the people that get involved early, even learning about it will have an advantage because they'll be able to see around corners. They can see the future better. And for many people, all that means is buying some now because we believe the price will go up and that's a good enough reason to get started. But there's a lot of other interesting things here that might enrich your life, might find a new career path, might just, you might just enjoy learning about this stuff. Yeah, that's a little side tangent. No, that's fantastic. And they're definitely, they're definitely nonlinear as you get further down the stack, so to speak. And I think I, th I thought of two things. The first is I thought of a story of my own and how hard it is post orange pilling to remember what the world looked like and felt like pre orange pilling. And I remember buying a, a what would today seem like a not insignificant amount of Bitcoin years ago. And then reading on some blogs, like not knowing anything about the community, not knowing really a whole lot about the tech. I knew a lot about sound money. I was a, an Austrian kind of gold bug at the time. And when I saw Bitcoin come around, I was like, oh, holy cow, maybe we have some actual sound money here that's electronic. That could be cool. But I fell for the, maybe this is the MySpace to the future Bitcoin, right? the future Facebook, right? And then I remember reading some article about some core developer who rage quit. It was like, Bitcoin's failed. It was Mike Hearn. But I had no idea who this guy was at the time. And I was like, oh, I guess this is over. And I sold it all. And then I had to wait for a, an order of magnitude later before I decided to start stacking again. I was like, wait a minute. Maybe I didn't know what was going on here. So I think stories like that, can go a long way to helping manage expectations and actually building trust because it's like, I have been burned. I like, I I'm coming to this with a few scars here. Uh, I'm not a brand new to the space and I'm just telling you because I'm enthusiastic and wet behind the ears. I don't remember what the other thing was that came to mind, <laughs> but it was good stuff. So let's move on to the jobs to be done. And this is a product language that I use a lot professionally and I found very powerful when thinking about Bitcoin, when thinking about why people are motivated to make any kind of a purchase, but certainly Bitcoin. And that for people that aren't familiar with this term, a job to be done is some problem that people have in their life that they're trying to solve. And they quote unquote, hire something to do that job for them. So I'm gonna quickly list the jobs to be done that I have identified that I see most commonly around Bitcoin. 
and would love to get your take on them. So I organize them into three categories. One is preserving and growing your wealth. Another is transferring wealth or value. And then a third, very small one is political change. So let's go one at a time. Most of them are in preserving and growing your wealth. That's where Bitcoin seems to be right now as a product, so to speak. And so I have five areas there. Saving for retirement, saving for college, like for your kids, right? Saving for inheritance. If let's say you're already of retirement, like you don't need to save for retirement, it's already there or it's almost there and you're behind anyway, but you've got some money that you don't need for everyday living, you'd like to pass it on. Buying a house or let's say a similar major one-time purchase. There's not a whole lot more than buying a house, but, and then protecting your wealth from inflation, which is to say like non-retirement savings that you're going to spend before you retire, uh, but not right now, not in the next few years, possibly. And you just don't want it ravaged by the dilution of your purchasing power. So those are the five main areas. And there are archetypal personas or demographics that you see that are more, more commonly have those needs, those goals, those problems, whatever that they're trying to solve for. What's your perspective on what I just laid out? Yeah. So I think this is a nice way to systematically break it down because there are so many sub bullet points under making money that it's going to really resonate differently based on the people you're talking to. For example, at Swan, we have an IRA product. So buy Bitcoin in an IRA, Roth, traditional, whatever. And what we're finding is that it's largely older folks. And let's say if you're over 55, it's absolute catnip to talk about passing on Bitcoin to the next generation to those folks. Their mind shifted towards that. They're thinking about end of life. They're thinking about legacy. And how cool is it if grandpa gives their grandson some magic internet money, right? And so that's just one little anecdote on how the, but if I told them about building wealth, they would be like, I don't care about that. Why yeah, would I waste relevant. my time? I have enough. So I love that you broke it out. What I would say is to set it in context, like the hot button or the jobs to be done, you said the center of mass on, on which one it is changes over time. And I actually view this as a three-dimensional thing. It's like a, it's a sphere. So the first cycle, it was nerds getting involved in Bitcoin. It was an internet curiosity. It was people trying to solve weird internet problems, cypherpunk mailing lists, uh, a little bit extended from that. So they're in it for the tech, actually. And that's the only thing that matters. There's no money to be made. It doesn't even have a, a price, a dollar price. Then the next cycle was more libertarians. They're like, oh, this is like an Austrian money thing. It's a non-state money thing. Okay, so that's actually the job that needs to be done is we can achieve political initiatives through this potentially. And each time this happens, the sphere of Bitcoin holders gets larger. So nerds, then we have libertarians. And the surface area of the people who adopt Bitcoin, the surface area there grows over time. And so they can relate to increasingly more normal people. But if you tell a normal person to come in 2013, no chance. Then 2017 hits. We're at the end of the long-term debt cycle. We're awash in fiat money, nihilism everywhere, gambling everywhere, stock market go up type stuff. And what happens? It's all about making money. And it's not all about building wealth. It's about literally flipping penny stocks to make money quick. And that's the primary selling point. Everywhere you go, ICOs reflect that, et cetera. 
And I would say 2021, it started to shift. There's still that for sure. You're staying at home, stimmy checks, Robin Hood. It's all the same. It's all the same symptom here. Or it all stems from the same cause, I should say. There's different symptoms. But it also started to talk about inflation, preserving wealth, and more of a defensive play. I would still say that's the absolute minority in the 2021 bull market compared to making money. But I think we crossed into that next phase of playing more defensively. And obviously, all this is relevant to the US. If you go to Africa, for example, it's way more important for them to connect payment rails between countries so they can just sell their goods and services appropriately. But again, this is US conversation. Yeah, now there's a little bit of wealth building, a little bit of wealth preserving. I think that's the stage we are now. I think the political change side, everyone who views Bitcoin as a political change, I would say more or less is already predisposed to it. They're probably libertarian-ish. That being said, there's a huge wave of progressive Bitcoiners that have been entering the community in the last few years. And they're going to see different values in Bitcoin and they're going to want it to do different things. And so in that sense, I think it actually does align with a lot of the left's values, modern left's values today. But I would say it's we're not it's not really accepted yet. So political change, I would call very late, if at all. Right now, it's so small. Yeah. We're just like knocking on the door. But anyways, that, that's how I think it. So yeah, build wealth, defend wealth, political change, I think in that order. It was I misinterpreted your first statement about how it changes over time. I agree with everything you said. You were referring to the cycles of Bitcoin over the life of Bitcoin. And I, which makes perfect sense. And I actually, I love that sort of surface area of like spheres within spheres as the addressable market, if you will, starts to grow. Exactly. I was actually thinking of it in terms of an individual's life and their life stage. Next to these, I have some personas. Yeah, I think it is both, right? It's turtles uh, all the way down. Yeah, I just looked at it from the wrong facet. But if you're saving for retirement, you're typically, let's say in your 30s or 40s, you're disillusioned with stocks, bonds, you've got a 401k, you don't understand it, it's not really doing much for you. And you're, you don't really believe that retirement is possible. If you're in your 20s, it's it most people in their 20s, in my experience, aren't necessarily thinking about retirement, they're thinking about making money, maybe having a good time, although that seems to be dwindling lately. And it, it's more, I just want to establish my career, I, I want to find a mate, like, like their life challenges aren't quite the same. But when it's savings for college, it's 30s and 40s, and it's usually a couple. They've got kids who are typically like below high school level. If someone's almost in college, depending on the cycle that you're in, Bitcoin's probably not going to be a great vehicle for that. But if they're young and you've got five to 10 year runway, Bitcoin's the perfect kind of thing for it. We talked about the inheritance thing about being, let's say, 55 or older, already having some wealth. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is... The way to figure out what the job to be done for whomever you're talking with is to ask questions, right? Use some of these demographic factors that I've just mentioned as leading indicators, give you a hunch about where they might be, but you talk with them and you ask questions about, depending on your relationship and the level of rapport you've established, how are you guys saving for retirement? What's the plan? Man, I looked at my 401k last week and it was dog meat. What's What's it look like for you guys? And that gets back to the sort of cognitive dissonance and generating some curiosity and seeing where they're coming from. I think there are a few jobs to be done around transfer wealth, but I think they're send, sending money abroad, the remittance use case, it seems to get a lot of play for 
If you want to send money quickly, like you don't want to deal with bank approvals or you've got to send money on the weekend. And anyone who's tried to wire like more than $1,000 or so to another country or just period, just wiring any money over $1,000 has realized that like waiting 10 minutes for the next block is actually incredibly fast relative to what the modern banking system can provide. And then spending money privately would be the third use case there. If there's going to be reporting requirements because of the size of the money that you have to spend or something like that, there, there may be a reason to do that. And then the political change, I just have sort of one area, which like we had just said, I think is really small. And that's this sense that like buying Bitcoin is defunding the fiat system. It's a protest of removing value from that decrepit monetary network and putting it into one that is based on honesty and, and hard money. Like there is an emotional satisfaction to that, that, that people who've been orange-pilled get from stacking sats. It is in a lot of ways a vote against the current system. And maybe, maybe if you've got some young, I don't want to over-stereotype here or pigeonhole, but the patterns I see are, let's say, maybe young libertarians that are full of piss and vinegar and feel completely without political agency right? Like, here's a thing that you can do that is well within your means, five bucks a week or whatever. And it, it's small, but it, you can give a middle finger to the system, so to speak. Awesome. So those are the jobs to be done and personas that I have right now. I'm going to keep building those out based on the stuff that you said. I want to move into the, the sort of last segment here and just, just ask about any tactics that you have. Like really... I guess tactical's the word. Any questions that you use a lot, any analogies that you use or visual concepts or turns of phrase or responses to common objections. What's the difference between Bitcoin and the rest of you? Isn't it just another crypto? Like things that people always hear. And then when they try to answer them, they just fumble terribly because they, they haven't answered them a whole bunch. What are some of your favorite conversational, interaction-oriented tactics. And it doesn't have to be live conversation if you like to point people to a certain blog or send people an article that really works well for you or something like that. What's your go-to toolkit? Definitely. This has taken many shapes over the years. I would say now I have very little time I want to dedicate to this in a one-to-one -one fashion. And it's a huge burden to take people through this journey. So everybody out there, orange pilling, shout out to you. It's a lot of work. And if we all participate a little bit, it, it goes a long way. I understand the challenges there. Now I think about this more as a one-to-many approach. And so I think about content. That's how I was recognized in the Bitcoin space. I wrote some essays early on that caught fire and then sort of build a little reputation and now they get shared a lot. And so I would say that's my preferred method is writing. And it's not the best for top of funnel stuff. It's not the best for getting people interested. But when someone, let's say they're a couple of steps deep and they're ready to start learning, I think that's where writing and podcasts really do move the needle and they're hyper scalable. So we need a ton of that. Quick tangent. If you're thinking, I don't know that much about Bitcoin. Everything's already been said. That's nonsense. Think about what you uniquely think, know, understand your worldview, what your world is, and write about Bitcoin on those terms or talk about Bitcoin, whatever the content medium is. 
there's room for so much more. And over time, the needs change. So anyways, just call to action. Don't be shy. Just start creating content. It'll help some people and you might get a job in Bitcoin as a bonus. So content's one. If I think about practically, what does that tactic mean today? When the number's going up and social proof is appearing online, I just lob out social proof posts on my normie social media accounts and say, oh, look, Swan just hired Della Dova, uh, NBA basketball player. And what that does is all the NBA fans uh, of my friends are like, huh? A few of them message me and then we start down a quick conversation or, hey, the talking heads are saying Bitcoin's going to be blah, blah, blah. And I don't put much thought into it. I just put those top of funnel social proofs out there and people come to me and then I can one-on-one send them a few resources and answer questions. Um, So it's essentially servicing the hand raisers in a really efficient way. That's how I think about it now. Yeah, those are two tactics. When I think about conversations that hang people up and people get stuck, like little dead ends, I think the two primary ones are about the environment and which is easy one to talk about. We all know that problem. But the harder one to talk about is actually capitalism versus fiat money. Mm-hmm. Young people notice there's a problem. They feel like they're not getting ahead financially. They feel like the system's rigged. And they say it must be capitalism. That's the problem. And there's no shortage of big name people saying this. So it's very easy to say, oh yeah, I'm part of the good moral people who just want to help out and all the big bad capitalists are causing problems. And so essentially they have identified a real problem, but they misdiagnosed the cause of that problem and they call it capitalism, where the actual answer is closer to uh, fiat money or the symptoms of fiat money, corporatism or a two-tiered society. There's lots of ways to attack that problem. But essentially, that's really hard to disabuse people of. Number one, they don't have enough context to to speak about this intelligently. So you have to really go to the bottom and start at the bottom with that kind of stuff. I don't have a short answer on how to solve that. I think there's a lot of ways to attack it. And based on the individual's understanding, that's how you should approach it. But I just want as an awareness piece, almost always people are thinking about that in the back of their head. So they don't know fiat's the problem. They think it's capitalism. They're going to say Bitcoin's unfair. All the early adopters are going to get paid, right? That would be a common critique to, to Bitcoin by someone who believes capitalism's the problem. And the environment one, I think the, the best way to do it, especially young people, they all think this, the best way to approach this one, I think, is talk about absolute terms. Okay, Bitcoin's using 0.02% of the energy supply. Not a lot, right? Okay, that's weird. Why does it? Why does the New York Times say it's so big? The New York Times says that because they're scared of the future and scared of new technologies and they don't properly understand energy. They use analogies that get clickbait headlines just like they do in topic X that you are familiar with, friend. Mm-hmm. And so letting them know that the media is getting clicks, they're not in the business of selling truth. And so they see a flashy headline and they throw it out there. They don't care if it's right or wrong. Um, and on the scared of the future thing, I like sending people images of pre, maybe a hundred years ago, it'd be like anti-electricity public cartoons, like political cartoons, or how cars are so bad because who's going to... Essentially... <laughs> When we went from horses to cars, the horse people said, fine, if we're going to have motor vehicles, we're going to need to have four workers per car. 
one guy operating the engine, one guy in front of the car waving flags, one guy behind the car waving flags, and one guy on standby to fix it or something like that. And essentially, humans are scared of change, illustrate it with something funny, and then they go, oh, yeah, Bitcoin's weird too. Okay, that makes sense why the media treats it in such a weird way. Mm. Um, a third one, I'm just rambling on what I think is important to know here, that the last one would be, why does Warren Buffett not like it? Why does insert Wall Street not like it? Although it's starting to change with BlackRock. I think that it's important to understand that the more you know about traditional finance, the harder it is to grasp Bitcoin. Why is that true? Because Bitcoin does not fit into the frame of that type of study. That study defines money as a certain way. That study is totally insular. It cannot understand or appreciate anything outside of that narrow lens of life. Mm. And if we can zoom out, fiat money is this, this interim period, in my belief, between hard money standards. And so actually fiat's the anomaly. However, we're all suffering from short-term bias and everyone we've ever known has lived under a fiat society. And so it's really hard to leave that condition. It's really hard for fiat trained economists or any Wall Street people to, to exit that bubble. It's coming from out of their worldview. So of course they're hostile to it. Let's see. That's probably all I have on that one. <laughs> Those are good. That was plenty. You said something almost as a throwaway comment that I thought was actually really important, which is find the topics on which they are already an expert and use those as an analogical kind of connecting point. I wish we had more time to keep talking about this, but as we wrap up, first of all, thank you so much. I would love to do this again sometime as all of this body of knowledge gets even further fleshed out. You've given me a lot to unpack here. I'm certainly going to expand the frameworks that I have right now based on this conversation. Brandon, for people that want to know more about you, more about your work, your content, where can they go? How can they find you and follow you? Yeah, absolutely. First, thanks for having me on. That was super fun. I think the mission here to help people understand how this stuff works is really important. There's so much energy from the Bitcoiners to help spread this thing. And I would say by and, by and large, we're pretty ineffective. And so if we can level up marginally how to do this, it will move the needle. So this stuff matters. And I also run, first of all, writing. All my writings at brandingquidum.com. You can find my Twitter there, previous essays, et cetera. Come say hello. And then I do work for Swan, marketing stuff over there. And I also run our affiliate program. So if you want to get paid to bring people to Swan, we pay out 25% of all the fees we charge for anyone who buys Bitcoin. So you can go to swan.com slash enlist, like enlist in the Swan Force, and sign up in a couple of days or so. You'll have your own landing page, like swan.com slash quitum with your face, a quote, whatever you want to put on it. And then anyone who signs up there get you gets $10 in Bitcoin for free and you get 25% of the fees. So you might as well get paid for orange pilling and you can push all the, the customer uh, service and Q&A on the SWAN team. Our client service team loves helping people. That's a quick shill and also hyper relevant. Yeah, that's I think that's pretty much it. Otherwise, come say hi on Twitter. I recommend people go seek you out on Twitter and I certainly recommend they seek out your content, the analogies to mycelium as well as your work on the fourth turning is very powerful stuff. If you haven't read it, stop what you're doing, go find it now and go have your mind blown. Brandon, thank you again. And I look forward to seeing you on another episode of the Orange Pill Academy. Love it. Thank you, man. Have a good rest of your day. All right. 
Thus ends another episode of the Orange Pill Academy. What are some of your biggest takeaways? Which ideas will you be taking for a test drive in your next conversation? If you want to connect with Brandon, you can simply visit brandonquidom.com. That's B-R-A-N-D-O-N-Q-U-I-T-T-E-M.com, where you can find links to his work, social media, and more. If you're serious about orange pilling others and want to earn money to do so, check out SwanForce at swan.com slash enlist. If you want to hear more conversations with the experts of Orange Pill Administration, I encourage you to follow us on Twitter at OrangePillA. I'll soon be releasing a beta version of the Orange Pill Playbook on orangepillacademy.com, which you can use to bolster your orange pilling skills. Hopefully it's there by the time you're listening to this, but if not, check back soon, and I thank you in advance for your patience. Thank you for sharing your time and attention with the Orange Pill Academy. If you've found this valuable, please subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five-star rating if you feel we've earned it, and tell your friends about us. Together, we can help Bitcoiners create more Bitcoiners and accelerate our journey toward a bright orange future.